Captain Moroni is one of the most venerated uh, prophet leaders in all of the Book of Mormon. We love him. Mormon loved him. And he was effective in being able to protect uh, his people whom he served. At the same time, he had a very harsh way of dealing with enemies and those that would oppose what he needed to do. It's a hard question to wonder if he had any other options available to him, or how comfortable are we with the fact that if someone descended, his response was generally to kill them. One of the blessings of the scriptures is causing us to wrestle with different difficult questions as we watch prophets and leaders try and handle the most difficult situations that they're in. Join us today as we try and figure out how do you lead a soul to heaven and how do you do it in a way that changes their nature, not just their behavior. Thanks for hopping on. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, Opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. Well, that said, let's... Uh Let's go ahead and get going. Um, in a lead-in to what we're going to talk about, in the, we're looking at uh, the Book of Mormon, and we're kind of dabbling over here in the uh, war chapters. Um, I want to back up just a little bit and set this up, if I can, here. If, uh, if I could pick for Joseph Smith, like, the worst year of his life, he had some really bad ones, but it's really hard to match 1838 for for Joseph Smith. Uh, this one was really kind of a bad year. Uh, he starts off in he's still in Kirtland, uh, but he's just suffering now the the failure of uh, the the uh, the bank uh, and people that loved him now hate him uh, and their farms are failing. A lot of speculations. A lot went into there, but he's living in the middle of the failure of the bank. Um, he and Sidney and their families are kind of driven out of Kirtland in the dead of night, having to sneak out separately so that they can try and make it to Missouri because Kirtland itself is no longer safe for these guys. After all the years they put into Kirtland, uh, they have to leave kind of with their, uh, with their tail between their legs, uh, which had to be horrible. Uh, he also is suffering the loss of the temple. Uh, as they leave, uh, and the temple is taken over by, by others. In fact, remember the, the story that even after they leave, uh, apostates are pouring into the temple to take over it, and Brigham Young is still finishing the breastwork uh, at the bottom of the pulpits, working on the, um, uh, the sacrament table. Anybody been to the Curtain Temple? Ever see the sacrament table on that thing? 
it, it folds up like that and then locks in place and it's in the shape of a yoke which I think is a beautiful symbolism for uh, that and then it would just then you pull the boards underneath and Brigham Young built that uh, so whenever whenever I've got groups there and we're looking at it it's just like I just need you to see how cool this is okay but Brigham Young in the midst of the apostates taking it he's finishing the the breastwork thing on the bottom of the the altars there because he's he committed to the Lord's house will be done before he leaves town did he dedicate or consecrate that temple on his way out no it had been dedicated two years earlier okay. in 1836 uh, but uh, as everybody was losing money, they figured, oh, we'll just uh, hang on to the temple. So, by the way, after they left and everything got, and after the death of the prophet Joseph Smith, who owned the Kirtland Temple? Trivia note. Emma. Emma did. Yeah, it's one of the reasons. Emma, because everything was entrusting and trusted Joseph Smith, and when... Joseph was killed, then everything rolls to Emma. That's, that's why we still don't have uh, things like the Nauvoo House. Uh, so is that why the reorganized church owns it now? It is. Yeah, because it was kind of deeded to her and then to her sons after that, yeah. But Joseph is leaving town in the middle of the night. Uh, he gets to uh, Far West. And, and they're living in, in poverty. Everybody's kind of in poverty in, in Far West, but that's where we get the story. Remember when, when Joseph prays one night with, with Emma and he says, Heavenly Father, thank you for this Johnny cake and please bring us something new, <laughs> better. <laughs> and the knock is at the door and somebody's got a ham. And he goes, you see, Emma, you see, the Lord will take care of us. Um, but they're living in poverty. Um, we have the siege at Far West as uh, enemies of the church are attacking. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Uh, you got uh, the horror of Hans Mill as, as part of that. Uh, we have the Mormon War. We're actually there, we're now at war with one another. Uh, he ends up in, in Liberty Jail. Okay. Now, as bad as all that was, here, here's where I think it was even worse for, for Joseph Smith. It seems like we get this stretch of a number of months where it just seems like Joseph drops into a funk. I think he becomes really depressed. I think the loss of everything is just weighed down heavily on him. And so we're not getting any revelations. We're just getting him kind of withdrawing. Uh, he's, he's pulling back. Um, and in his, in his pulling back, it creates a little bit of a leadership uh, vacancy for people like uh, Sidney Rigdon, who is going to be a lot more fiery. Remember Sidney Rigdon on the 4th of July, speaking of the first presidency of Zion, stands up and gives the salt sermon on July 4th where he goes some salt isn't worth it's lost its savor and it needs to be trampled underneath uh, he's also nice enough to, in, to uh, utter the words that Governor Boggs will then appropriate later when he says the war between us and the Gentiles will be a war of extermination this is Sidney Rigdon's Campbellite fiery rhetoric that is just polarizing everything 
Okay, and Samson Avard then uh, organizes the Danites. Uh, the Danites' uh, job is a vengeance. If you're going to burn our farm, we will go burn your farm. If you're going to steal our pigs, we will go find another farm and we will steal your pigs. And, and so we'll go back and forth. It's the things that really kind of led to uh, the, the war was that, uh, and, and you, they just had a number of them were just like, they're tired of being pushed around no more. We lost it in independence. We're not going to do it here. And it will be a war of extermination. Okay. And again, Joseph is nowhere to be found. In fact, at one point, they're going to go up and they're going to march on. The Danites march on the uh, sheriff at Gallatin. Uh, and, and Avard and Sidney Rigdon are at the head of it. And the sheriff goes, well, wait a minute. Where's Joseph Smith? And Joseph was like one of the riders at the back of the group. He just kind of melded into the, you know, he just kind of was, I think he was overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do. I, I just think he was really depressed. So then there, and part of what the Danites do is then issue threats against the Zion First Presidency, uh, who was uh, appropriating some money coming from the South as, as uh, uh, members were, were being baptized in the South and coming up. And so they were tacking things on like, Oliver Cowdery's door and go, you and your family need to get out of here. <laughs> or W.W. W. Phelps, you guys need to leave. You know, your, fa your family will face the consequences. <laughs> okay, so they were turning their anger on the first presidency. Uh, and that results ultimately in the excommunication of Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and W.W. W. Phelps. Okay who then go directly, when they have to leave far west, they go directly to Richmond and Governor Boggs and said th these guys have become a, th a threat and, and, it's, and it's their witness that inspires Boggs to write the extermination order. And uh, so uh, think about for Joseph the, the painfulness of excommunicating Oliver Cowdery, the second elder of the church. So you just get this, you know, when you stand in far west, there's not much there, but it's a place of, for me, of incredible sadness uh, about what was happening and how the church was just hanging by a theoretical thread, certainly at that moment. Uh, and then, of course, then the fall of far west and the church is scattered over two states. Okay? And then, of course, along comes the extermination order and everything that uh, my pioneer grandfather talks about being holed up in a house with a, with a uh, truck full of, uh, of corn that they'd been able to harvest. They were eating corn all, all winter while they were waiting for the things to settle down that 1838, 1839 winter. Yeah. So would you have an opinion about whether all of this polarization uh, had a net positive or net negative effect on the uh, growth of the, the kingdom of God? Oh boy, that's a really good question, isn't it? Because in some ways, well, ho hold on to that. Hold on to that. Because um, I, I mean, it looks to me like, you know, for different uh, reasons, 
we kind of have a similar amount of polarization that we're starting to experience and that we're going to experience. Oh yeah, and, and there is. And, and there was this kind of polarization actually at the death of Joseph Smith as well, where people were choosing sides and then there was animus back and forth towards each other. I think it's interesting though that for Think about for Joseph, though, he goes through all of this and then he has to, then he's hauled off to the first to the Richmond jail and then to Liberty. And he's got to sit there for four months thinking about this and getting letters from Emma, you know, as as she's having to make her way across uh, Missouri back into Illinois with the with like the uh, the uh, translation of the Bible stuffed in her dress kind of thing, right? Um, and so he's got to think about it. And so look at, so so to me, when in March, I think it's the 23rd, 24th, 25th of 1839, he writes the long letter to the church in general with the help of the other brethren in Liberty Jail. They're going to send this letter out. And later we will grab portions of that and we it will form sections 121, 122, 123, the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. But that come from this letter after he's had months of thinking about all of this and the effect uh, on the church, right? So look at where he goes with this. So part of the letter is going to say, and, and you get a sense of where, what the effect all of this had on Joseph as he's sitting in that cramped jail. Thy mind, O man... If thou wilt leave a, lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. And if you would lead a soul to heaven, you must do what? Stretch. Stretch. Think. Ask. Investigate. Research, learn. We just think, well, we just need to teach him the truth and then baptize him. <laughs> you go, nah, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to contemplate the darkest abyss, ask questions, dig a little bit. Do you think he's asking him when you just said the darkest abyss? Asking him to maybe contemplate both sides, so the expanses of eternity would be the and the darkest of this would be Satan's hold. Yeah. Do you think he's asking him to do? Sure, but on top of that, how does section one twenty one start? What's the very first line of section one twenty one? Which is, Oh God. Where art thou? Where's the pavilion, the, 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 the safety? Where's the pavilion that covereth thy hiding? Where'd you go? You know, I think that park is that deepest abyss is kind of Job-like. You know, and, and he's going to be told, you're not yet as Job. Ain't that bad. Well, it's pretty bad. It's been a rough year. <laughs> no, it's not that bad. And the broad expanse of eternity... Then he's going to say, "Let now think about the actions of the Danites and those that were more polarizing. 
Let honesty and sobriety and candor and solemnity and virtue and pureness and meekness and simplicity crown our heads in every place in fine become as little children without malice, guile, or hypocrisy. If you're going to lead a soul to heaven, where do we got to start? <laughs> How we doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, now, there's no question that what comes after this is going to be his dressing down of those that would go off the rails. You know, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? You know, their hearts are set on, you know, on the pride. And, yep, and he's going to attack those that attack. But it's interesting that a lot of this reflection rolls back on those of us that would save souls. Seems to be the thing that is at the heart of this. Okay. Yeah, Brent. Last sentence, about malice, guile, and hypocrisy. About three weeks ago, I went out with our missionaries to teach a lesson. And a convert was baptized two weeks back, asking to say a prayer. And that prayer was one of the most frequent prayers I've heard in a long time. One thing he mentioned in the prayer, and I think we can all relate to it, is he prayed to the President of the United States that said, Father, he needs your help. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the innocence of which he did it, I thought was amazing. Isn't that beautiful? Is that different than what we might put on Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so again, he's going down this road. How do we, can, how do we bring a soul unto salvation? And then, and then he's going to go here. And we recognize this. No power or influence ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only how? By persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned. Wow. You know? Long-suffering. I, I, when I was on my mission, uh, we, we had, we were under instructions. This was a day of harvest, not a day of planting. We're supposed to be out there getting them. So we're going to mention the baptismal thing in the first discussion and if they're not progressing towards baptism by the third discussion, they're out of here, man. We got to move on because it's a day of harvesting, not <laughs> persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, and love unfeigned. I think about some of those that we ended with and went on to the next one because our job was just to move fast. It's a day of harvesting. And I think about all the gentle souls that if we had been more long-suffering and hung with them, because if we're going to change somebody's, well, we're going to talk about this, whether we're going to change their habits or whether we're going to change their nature. And I think that's, that's the battle that we're involved in. We're not trying to change somebody's habits. We're trying to change their nature. And, ha and, and you're trying to say, what comes first? I don't know. That's a mix. Yeah. Yeah, so the thing is, I think what your mission president and maybe even the church is thought at the time was it wasn't so much about that you're you're judging these people or you're casting them off or anything. It's just that people don't change unless they are willing to change. Yeah. And you're not asking them to become perfect or to be ready for baptism on the third discussion, but you're asking them, if you knew this, would you do what would you do about it? 
And I think that's always been appropriate. Uh, the, the time for focusing on people who are less receptive as during the afterlife before they get rid of uh, There's no question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back then, we were kind of coming from the direction, and I think even a lot of the church was coming from the direction of, who's going to join the church? Well, it's the elect. Who are the elect? Ephraimites. We're looking for Ephraimites. I'm going to teach you the gospel. I'm going to start teaching it. It's not lighting a fire in you yet. You're not of the believing blood. You're not in the believing blood, therefore, we'll move on. We'll find somebody who is under the believing blood. Hope you figure it out later, but my job right now, I only have two years. I've got to move on. I've got to find the believing blood. Are you the believing blood? I don't know. You'll be baptized? Yes. Okay, they are. I'm leaving you. I'm going to her. You know, because it's about now. We've got to get it now. And how do I know? You're still smoking. Well, in, in England, my, my first week out, I'm like, the, the uh, sister so-and-so is not a member of the church. How come she's not a member of the church? And my district leader goes, well, she can't give up the fags. And I went, can't give up the, what? <laughs> she's still smoking. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, but the fact that she's not smoking it, she, doesn't, she still doesn't get it. You know, she, right? Okay. All right, so, comment? You're thinking? I'm just thinking that uh, those are pretty fast and harsh judgments, and we we don't sometimes take into consideration the new culture that we're going into, particularly in foreign countries. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty daunting, particularly for 19, 20-year-old people to determine whether they are... Uh, yeah. I know, I know. And th th those were the days of we figured it out, and you get one baptism for every two thousand doors. So the goal is how fast can you get through the two thousand doors to get your baptism? It's a numbers thing. Okay. Now, no power. Now, so back to Joseph. No power influence ought to be maintained by virtue of the priest, only by persuasion, long suffering. Then he's going to say, and you know this, by kindness. Pure knowledge which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Okay? Kindness and pure knowledge. We've got to be able to love and, and show forth love. Um, now, reproving betimes with sharpness uh, immediately, quickly, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, important point, then doing what? Showing an increase of love afterwards uh, uh, towards him, lest he esteem thee to be thy enemy. Hey, hold on to that one, because we're gonna we're gonna land right in the middle of that in just a second. Okay. Now, so here's here's I think the question that that arises. Um, one of the things that that I've kind of tried to do a lot either in my practice or wherever is that I think number one rule in parenting and leadership and it's and it's this <laughs> why it doesn't work for every kid for every relationship 
one might something might work for one person, but it won't work for the other. Sure. Yeah. You're probably one or two layers too shallow on them. It's true. You're, you're dealing with, with uh, symptoms and you're curing symptoms, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because it, it was one time, this person is like we are constantly evolving. And so as parents, we just think, oh, finally, we finally figured it out. You never figure it out. No, because then you get on to another kid, well, and, and all the rules that worked on this one don't work on that one. <laughs> yeah. This is sort of putting a lot of stuff together, but um, sometimes I think the parents, this is the rule, you do what I say because I say it. Yeah. And it's like, I hold the priesthood, therefore you will do what I say. I'm going to start pulling out the authority card. Right, and uh, I've heard the the one thing be proving be times with sharpness, and they live by that, and they forget the rest of it. There are so many people that get standing in this world, and one of the people that get a lot of standing are the religious preachers because you can be a religious leader without any of this. If you want money and power, you can pretend to know the gospel. And as long as you can appeal to people, hey, you've achieved your goal. And I think that sometimes that goes over into how the parents treat their kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know that, for instance, when I, when I work with... Uh, parents that are struggling with a kid who's struggling with pornography. What works if you want to make sure that a kid isn't going to look at pornography at 16? No access. No access. Absolutely. Give him a flip phone. No access. Sit right next to him like one dad did. Sit right next to him while he's on the computer uh, and make sure it can... Why? Because it works. Because he's not looking at anything because he's got a flip phone and because we sit next to him at any time that he's on the computer. So my kid isn't looking at pornography. Not right then. No. <laughs> oh, then he, the same kid sat in my office and went, oh yeah, let me show you how I'm doing it. <laughs> he, he figured out how to do it. Okay, But as far as the parents were concerned, this, this over-control thing, I'm going to helicopter this kid to death. That works, doesn't it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'd went. You know, I've I've told this story about the, the the lady that came and said, "My my my son isn't doing his homework," and I says, "Well, I can fix that." She says, "Really? Yeah, I got I absolutely guarantee he's going to do his homework." Great. What do you use a taser? <laughs> he's not doing his homework. Just taser the snot right out of him, man. Blue. And you go, well, isn't that abusive? And I go, oh, yeah, it really is. Is CPS going to get called? Probably. <laughs> but if your single goal is for him to do his homework this week before finals, I promise you that'll work. Now, if you're wanting a kid that's going to learn to study on their own and be self-driven and motivated and will do the same thing at college as he's doing here, then a taser is probably not your best opportunity. <laughs> okay, yeah. 2006, I was going to school in uh, Linwood, Washington, 
I was at the library in Renton, Washington, printing out some uh, building code references. They have a, a media center in the reference area of the library with about 12 or 16 computers. There was a 14 or 15 year old watching pornography on the computer. Four or five of us could see that kid's screen. It was fairly obvious the kid wasn't 18 years old and none of us wanted to, I don't think, wanted to see it. I went and mentioned to the reference librarian that maybe they should do something about this. This is 2006. Yeah. They told me that that was uh, censorship and some things like that and that we have no right to tell people what they could do ah. on those computers. Ah, nice. But this kid was finding a way, right? Well, I, it was probably a feature-length movie. I don't yeah. <laughs> yeah, beware of what works. But we have a tendency to go for what works. And so often when I watch people struggling with, the, especially like things in the gospel, Man, so often it wasn't the gospel message. It was the messenger. Where there was a leader, a parent, or something like that going, you will read the Book of Mormon and love it. <laughs> Church is true. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and I'm going to battle you and everything. Then I'm going to send you off to, to EFY, and then you'll get a testimony, and then you'll go on a mission and do great. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I ran into a fellow years ago that handled that up very well. He's not a member of our church, but he had a teenager that was misbehaving. Yeah. And he said, I had to lay down the law with him. I said, if you do X one more time, you and I are going to go down to your bedroom, and I'm going to take my belt, and I'm going to make you wish you had. Yeah. When it happened, he said, okay, son, let's go. They go down to the bedroom, they get down there, and the kid's just shaking his boots. Dad takes the belt off, he looks at the look. I've obviously failed as a father, so you have to whip me. <laughs> wow. 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 Yeah. Well, even though the goal is to change the heart, and some kids' hearts just won't be changed, sometimes you do have to follow what works just to save the rest of the family in the meantime so that they don't have reign and rule over you and them doing their bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. In other words, you're having to sometimes look. Now, that means, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because again, our goal, isn't it, is to change, are we trying to change, think about ourselves for a second, are we trying to change our behavior, are we trying to change our nature? We're trying to, ultimately, exaltation, is it about our behavior? No, exaltation is about, we become like, you know, Jesus prayed in the intercessory prayer, make them one in me like I am in thee. We're going to be of one nature. And sometimes when we're doing what works, we're actually going after behavior, but behavior's got to change too, so it flows. But when we talk about ourselves, we can use this model. When we talk about others, it's not our nature or their nature or their behavior, it's their understanding or their no question yeah no question we don't get to choose their nature but the one thing I don't think I put it on here okay um, let me just mention though because part of what we're going to end up talking about is the fact is that sometimes given somebody's behavior we're going to have to do what works we, we may not have 
a choice while we're looking at all of the consequences around us. But we also need to understand that when we do what works, we can't do something without there being consequences. There is always going to be consequences. I had a lady I was talking to this week, and, and she's, she's, you know, she's battling the perfectionism thing, and she's looking at, I have like three good things I could be doing. Which good thing am I going to be doing? And we talked a lot about if you, sometimes you're choosing what you want to do, but you also have to, if I choose A, I'm also choosing not to do B. For instance, it would be a wonderful thing if they sent Elder Bednar, like they just did, to a state conference in Bentonville. Wonderful. But they didn't send him to Bakersfield. So Bakersfield didn't get Elder Bednar, so they're having to choose. We're going to bless Bentonville, but this week we're not going to bless Bakersfield. (laughs) Bentonville, right? So when we choose... We have to recognize sometimes we have to make the choices that we have to make, but we also need to recognize there will be conse- there are just consequences. So our choices are often, I have to know what I'm not choosing to do by choosing to do what I am do- choosing to do. Isn't that when we have to trust in the Lord? Yeah. Because we can't do it all ourselves. But, it's all, but what if it's all good stuff? Like, you know? Right. And so we have to trust in the Lord that if we send the apostle to Bentonville, that the Lord will inspire the stake leaders in yeah. the other in Bakersfield. I mean, just video it and let the Bakers. That's true. Uh, we try and find a way to fit the compromise in there. You right? You know, I knew yesterday if I if I spoke in the Chinese branch in Plano, I couldn't be in the YSA ward in Richardson. I had to make a choice. And under the okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak in the Chinese group in Plano, but I. I'm still missing that I didn't get a chance to meet with my YSAs. And there's a cost associated with that. But, uh, the Lord, now, they may be better off. I don't know. The Lord's not <laughs> limited, though, that he can't send the Holy Spirit to all of those places. Yeah, but there's still going to be consequences, right? Sure. Uh, especially when we have to make hard choices about whether we're going to let a child who is disrupting an entire class, let them continue to stay in the class versus am I going to have to invite them to leave? Yeah. This is a off on a little different angle, so I'm sorry to yeah. hit that with you. The, the, in this class? Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> never stopped us here. There's a situation. My sister lives in Utah, and they have a guy, a family in the ward that he's actually a therapist, but Uh-oh. they had a 20-year-old daughter that was misbehaving and so what they did is they drained her bank account and then kicked her out of the house and then called up all the board members and said do not allow her to be in her house she's a terrible person and my sister took her in because she, you know, she, said, she wasn't going to go with that yeah. I, I, I know what happens to young girls on the street anyway she's constantly running into it and like she said last night she was up visiting a friend in Salt Lake about an hour from them, and she accidentally locked the keys in the car, and she knew her parents had an extra copy, so called up her parents and said, can you bring me up a copy of the key to the car so I can, you know, get in the car? No, we're busy. You'll have to call back. 
you'll have to figure something out because we're too busy to come up there. Wow. And so they called up my sister and her husband. They went over there to get the key so they could drive up and give her the key. And the father answered the door and he seemed a little apologetic. Well, she just called at a bad time because we're getting ready to start a temple preparation class with our younger daughter. And so she says, I was so tempted, but I bet my husband <laughs> So you're too busy talking about families are forever to help your daughter. Yeah, I know. I know. So often, so often. That's why I say we're having to, we're, if, if we're going back to this idea of kindness and pure knowledge, it means we have to make choices on a regular basis. And, and we're going to be guided by the Spirit to know what that looks like. Now, so I want to I want to use this as an example. We're finally getting to the Book of Mormon after most of the class. Uh, let's let's hop over to uh, one of Alma Alma twenty three to start with. It's the anti Nephi Lehi's right? Okay, and they're doing a lot of bad things, and we know I don't want to spend a lot of time on how they were converted because we've kind of been over this ground. Um, but notice, but notice what it is that they end up doing. Um, first of all, we know that however this worked, uh, Mormon is going to say, as a, in verse six, "I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, you know, with I'm going to swear on this, that as many of the Lamanites believed in their preaching, didn't just change their behavior." Um, they were converted unto the Lord, neither did they fall away. And we know that, look at 13. And as these that laid down their weapons of their rebellion are their weapons of war, and they were all Lamanites. So as a result of how they were approached, their natures changed, not just their behavior. You got this sweeping change. Okay? In fact, they're going to change their name so that so they're not the same. Now, let's let's now hop over this fun one. All the way over to chapter 51. And it, this is post-election. There was an election between the king men and the free men. Okay? Who were the who were the king men? Of noble birth, high up. I think they were probably descendants of Zarahemla, is my own little take on that, that I think they were of the line of Judah and still believe that they were Davidic kings, and so they should be kings, and that we should be ruled by kings. Old Testament, the brass plates say we should be ruled by kings, right? That's my guess. I don't know, but that's my guess. There were people who were told that if, we, if you make me king, I'll make you... Yeah. So they... They were corrupt people. They were, and so probably corrupt people using these king guys as their. So we're all working together. By the way, this got to be the this got to be the the war in heaven, right? <laughs> vote vote for Lucifer, and he's going to make you somebody in the next life, kind of thing. Okay, all right. So they're, they're going to have this. They have a vote, right? And uh, the free men, those that believe in liberty and freedom, and that. They win, uh, and it was you know quite a contentious uh, war. Um, now, 
what we're going to get is that um, after this battle, now the Lamanites decide it's time to attack. Now look at 13. came to pass that the men were called king men, had heard that the Lamanites were coming to do battle, and they were glad in their hearts, and they refused to take up arms. Okay? For they're so wroth with the king, with the chief judge, and also with the people of liberty, that they would not take up arms to defend their country. Hmm. Okay? Now, you'd have to decide. You know where this is going, but you'd have to decide, what are we doing with this? What do we do with this people? It's kind of an dangerous moment. The Lamanites are coming. What do we do? There's a lot of ways we could handle these rebellious people. Now, here's the question though for me, and this is the one that I think uh, got me thinking. Came to pass that when Captain Moroni sees this and the Lamanites are coming, he was what? He was exceedingly wroth. Now, just kind of looking through presentism, <laughs> our eyes of the present, when is the absolute worst time to make a decision about when to, to deal with your rebellious kids? When you're, angry. when you're angry. Now, what you decide to do at that point may turn out to have been the good thing. It may not be. I just know that when I'm angry, I tended to overreact or make poorer decisions than I do when I'm calm and a little bit more logical. Anger is not a good time because when we're angry, then we're going to get out the belt or when we're angry, we're going to, you know, we're going to tell our 16-year-old son, you're grounded for the rest of your life. <laughs> or you're going to be grounded for the next month. Well, the service project is Saturday morning. Okay, well, you can go there. You know, it's like we're having to start dialing back because we made a decision in anger. Okay? So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, look at how, how's he going to deal with this? He, he was exceedingly wroth uh, because of the stubbornness that he'd labored with so diligently. He's exceedingly, his soul is full of anger. And what does he do? Look at 18. Army, they sent the armies, they pulled down their pride and nobility. Uh, as they lifted up their weapons of war the, uh, against the men of Moroni, they were hewn down and leveled to the earth. And how many die? He's going to kill 4,000 king men in his wrath and in his anger. In two chapters before that, when he was bringing the um, Amalekites back, he gave them the choice Same thing. Of, of making a covenant or being put to death. So that was kind of coercion. Oh, it's true. Look at, look at uh, 20. Look at 20. And the remainder of the descenders, the ones that are still alive, rather than be smitten down by the earth, by the sword, yielded to the standard of liberty, and were compelled to hoist the title of liberty upon their towers and their city and their arms to take in defense of their country. Now, let me ask. Go back to section 121. What happens when we try to coerce people not out of a sense of love and caring? Are we changing their behavior? Are we changing their nature? Now, I'm not about to say whether this is exactly what needed to happen. It might have been. There might have had no choice 
given the size of the city or the amount of the people, they might have had to institute something immediately. But like we were talking about last time, we should allow the scriptures to disturb us a little. Enough to say, what would we do now? And is that different? And are we... It's like the killing of of Laban by Nephi. And you go, probably need to happen. I'm not going to second guess his spirit. But at the same time, am I comfortable with that? No, I don't have to be comfortable with that. Do I have to be comfortable with the fact that Captain Moreau and I killed 4,000 people? Because because they were descending. No, I'm not. I'm not super comfortable with that. I don't think Moroni was comfortable with it either, though. And, no. And the the point is not whether or not you need to be comfortable with it, but uh, you step outside the line when you conclude that Moroni did the wrong thing. Because now you're you're being the quarterback. Absolutely. You don't have the right to be the quarterback. Nope, I don't. But I can be uncomfortable. Because because I can look at that and say, in, in the overall scheme of things, is it good for us to make decisions when we're angry? And, is, and, and even if at the end of the day, this was exactly the right thing that needed to happen, and it could very well have been, because I don't know what other options were available to Captain Moroni. I don't. And this might have been the only option he had. I, I don't know. But now, but, but let me ask this question. Just studying human behavior. What effect would this approach have had on the king men going forward? Because that one we can look at the scriptures well, and know for sure. I mean, they're, they're not going to be loyal. <laughs> no, they're not going to be loyal. It didn't. Did it change their nature? No. It changed their behavior. At least for that short period of time, they're going to obey and defend their or did they obey what was the consequence of taking this kind of approach whether again whether it's right or wrong well so then I could be arguing that the, the biggest mistake there was allowing any of them to live <laughs> well yeah <laughs> okay and the earlier issue about coercion I mean Somebody comes against me and they're trying to kill me or capture me as a slave, and I tell them, gee, you either have to covenant with me that you'll never do this to me again or I'll kill you. I don't see any problem with that kind of uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking to me, that's me being very kind. You know, it changed their nature. Did it change? And, and some of them had a sense of honesty and integrity. Yeah. And, and, and if they were willing to not come against me, then uh, maybe I coerced them into it, but that's better than, than executing them. Uh, here, here's the thing that I think is so fascinating about this. How did the war start? The Lamanites are coming to attack who? The anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Why are they having to defend the anti-Nephi-Lehi's? Because they won't fight. And they know that if we don't step in and defend the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they'll go, bring it. We're, we're already good with God. We don't think you are. So, and, and again, that's one of those things you can debate. It's like, okay, then should we be pacifists or something? I, no. Here's, 
there's a wrestle here, guys, and that's why I don't think there are any easy answers, and I don't think we should be looking for easy answers. But I do know that when we make choices, there are consequences that come. And what was the consequence with the, that we're going to take the harder approach, we're going to kill 4,000 of them, we're going to force them to put the title of liberty on their city, and we're going to force you to defend the city against the Lamanites. How long does that work? In this particular case, how long did it work? <laughs> Until Captain Moroni is out of town. <laughs> it, it lasts in the short run only until Captain Moroni is out of town. That's when we go to Alma 61, and we found what happened when they finally leave town. Did they like, okay, we will now, we're now going to be Nephites and defend against the Lamanites? And oh, look what they do. Okay, Paul Pohoran, you know, this is after he gets the letter from Rome. I go, hey, where'd the supplies go? We're starving out here, and you're sitting on your thoughtless throne. You know, the little scripture we used to send to each other on our missions. Somebody was in the bathroom too long. We would write this verse. <laughs> how, how can you sit on this, uh, on this throne in your thoughtless state? <laughs> I, think, I think it's 62, I think, is, is the verse. <laughs> how dare you do that? It's my turn. So how did you have, I, I didn't think they had even pencils and paper when you were on your mission. <laughs> We, we scrolled it. That's right. With a stone and a stylus. <laughs> no, that would be. It's been so easy. Okay. Um, now he says, Pahoran, I'm glad Moroni, you're still a great guy. But let me let me tell you what's been going on in your absence. Uh, there are those who do join your afflictions in so much that they have risen up a bit rebellion against me, and also of my people who are freemen and have risen up exceedingly numerous. As soon as Moroni left town, what happened? It falls apart. Why? Behave, the behavior change was just temporary. Their natures still were not yet changed. And the first opportunity, they're dialing up pornography. I know, the first opportunity is that they're attacking, right? Uh, they have sought to take away the judgment seat. They've used flattery. They led away the hearts. They've driven it. They're flocking to it. And they're in defense of their country, their freedom, and their wrongs. Okay? In the middle of all of this, their nature hasn't changed. And their behavior still... So, so let me ask something here. Uh, and and we, know, we know how this works. How they were going to have to keep going back and defeating these guys over and over and over. So, if, if we go back and look again, new wanting to change. If we are, if we are parents, if we're leaders or something like that, how do we change the hearts of men and women and kids? And isn't that isn't that the question we're battling? Because ultimately, we want anybody are leading our kids, our grandkids, whoever, to change their nature. Because when they're changing their nature, the, the things that they do are driven by a whole different reason. Right? Yeah. I think that one of the ways that I do it is that I model by example. 
And so I show them that I can change. I can have new ideas. I can adopt new principles and philosophies, and I share that with them. And I um, help them um, learn how to watch that and then model it. So if they're if they're watching you, okay. It's, hold on here. Okay. I'm gonna select all. Delete. Okay. Okay. Now, are you are you modeling by example and then just hoping they'll see it, or do you are you explaining why it is that you're doing what you're doing? So I talk a lot, so we. <laughs> by the way, that says example. In case it, I know you're trying to figure. I'm not writing in Hebrew. I'm really not. We discuss a lot of things in my house. We really. Yeah, here's why I'm doing, or here's what I'm thinking, or this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So we've got to be able to communicate. I like that. Okay. What else? If we're if we're doing it, what what Joseph is suggesting? Because again, I just think it's interesting that Joseph. At the end of all of 1838, and he's writing in section 121, he's right, really talking more about how do we help change the souls and, of, of men and women rather than attacking. So he's trying to figure out how to, what does that look like. I think that as a parent, the hardest part was helping my children understand I love you. The core of my motherhood is I love you. But the, but the big but is what, what you're doing, your behavior, and how to balance that too and have my children understand that that love is always there, will always be there, and it's consistent. Even if you're having to maybe draw a line and say, I love you, but you can't live here for a little while, while you're doing what you're doing. Yes. And that's, a, that's the hard balance. And is that not the, our pre-existence? I mean, it, it's it's, it's the tough line. But could we also, could we drive them out of the house and do it out of anger? And I'm in, I'm in my rothness. And so I'm doing kind of, I may be doing what needs to happen for the time being, but depending on how I'm coming, how I'm doing it. Anger doesn't come from a mother who loves uh, it's coming. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on. Okay. Just let's keep in mind when we're talking about anger. Remember that anger is a secondary emotion, right? What's the primary emotions? Fear and and pain. So we can be angry at our kids, but if sometimes. It, it, it enabled me to kind of settle, get off my anger high horse and down into that and still do what needs to happen. If I recognize that I'm doing it, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you're doing. I'm afraid the effect it's going to have on the other kids. I'm afraid a lot of things. And then 
but the whole feeling is different. But if it's simply done out of anger, I promise you we will do it too harshly, we'll do it over the top, and we'll generally do it to an extreme because generally when we do things out of anger, we're going to come back later and go, I wish I'd done that differently. And it's not probably the right thing, but... It's not respecting that. No. When you are at that level of... You're asking them, you have to accept my anger and my fear and my pain, and you've got to take that on. Yeah. So now, if I love them, we're going to have to figure out a way that I get rid of my anger at what you're doing because that's causing me pain. That's a, I, a hard line, isn't it? It's a hard line. But, but because some of the things we know that doesn't work, we, 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 if we're going to draw a line and say what doesn't work, we know that doing things out of anger doesn't work. How about guilt? How, how about, how about can, but by the way, if we're looking at what works and what doesn't work, does guilt work? Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, and, and by the way, let, let's put, it's like, anger, guilt, and fear, those are like the number one teaching aids for an awful lot of the Nephite preaching. You can go to hell. It'll be flames. It'll be burning. Or, you know, God's going to be pained because you're doing this. You know, we use those things. Yeah. So there's a lot of things in my life that I never would have been able to learn from a lecture. I had to learn by experience. <laughs> and parenting is one of them. And... <laughs> And I think our kids are the same way. There's a lot of things. It doesn't matter how much we talk to them and set the example and love them. There's some things they're only going to learn by experience. Especially some kids. Yes. <laughs> if, if their learning style is I'm not going to listen to anybody else from the age of 18 months up, then they will have to learn by doing the painful things themselves. There's no question. Yeah. You know, I, I've thought sometimes, wouldn't it be okay if we take the agents away long enough? Just long enough to help make a good decision to give back. <laughs> How many have said, I need, I need Alma's angel <laughs> to come shake the earth? And by the way, I'd say, okay, so was, did Alma the younger be converted by fear and anger? No, if you listen to his own speaking to Coriant, he says, I had to spend long study and prayer to change well, his nature. No, that's true. <laughs> that's exactly it, yeah. I feel like I have to make a, a class confession. Okay, hold on. And I've made all the mistakes that I'm sure all of us have made. I only know it now that love works better. How do you know that? The bad things that I did because we have three adopted children that we got at birth. Right. And we have two down and one up. So is that the measuring stick of my motherhood? Yeah, probably. If if you're if you're on the if you're on the check the box program, yeah, if you, I, I totally. Think you made all the mistakes. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Heavenly Father went two thirds, one third. You were like flip that thing, yeah, one third, two thirds. I'm just saying, though. I wish we're all on the journey to change our own nature. We are. 
and I we are. that I've made every single mistake. Yeah, yeah. I and all think that I raise my kids perfectly, and I love them unconditionally. I and, and isn't it interesting that, that somehow, in, in, without thinking about it, we kind of have a certain amount of parental arrogance that think that somebody's going to get to the to the pearly gates or the judgment day and it's really going to be based on how we did as parents we screwed up as parents so they're going to hell kind of thing rather than that started saying we all make mistakes and and our own nature is changing our problem is with our kids or groups that we lead or something like that they're on their own path and we all have natures that are still evolving. And their father's children, and where's my faith that that father cannot at some point in time? Because I screwed them up beyond what father can do to reclaim them. <laughs> no, <I think> <laughs> it was so egregious that not even God can get there. No, no, no. My feeling is, where's my faith that I believe with all of my heart that these children are sealed to us and father knows them and he will perhaps. Well, uh, but also where is, in there all is, where is the, uh, I, I did the best I knew how. At the time, my, my understanding. I'm in the process. I'm learning yeah. off, unfortunately, on them. On the fly. And having to make constant decisions about how we do that. that that's why... That's why the Nephite conception that if you don't have it done by the time you die, you're kind of toast, is, was what they understood at that moment in time. But gratefully, we've had restored knowledge and that tells us so much more goes on. As we were saying, so much more is going to happen after this life than happens during this life because the situations and the natures and the DNA and the, uh, all those things have changed. Now we have a chance to hear things, really. And the natural man is gone. And the natural man is kind of still moldering in the ground, and now we finally get our first shot. Alan, here. So, I'm just, I just want to ask you a question. So, I think that um, what you're teaching Brother Kinkley about, um, basically the nature of the, you know, um, the decisions that the different groups of people make in the Book of Mormon, I think it's super profound. I think it's vastly But the question I want to ask is, you know, do we think that, um, or suggest maybe, maybe sometimes in the church as members and as leaders, what happens is, is we have a tendency to take those stories and take them at face value. Yes. And not Thank necessarily you. apply any kind of objectivity yes. to that. So in this case, for example, in this particular case, we're talking about you know, how the, you know, they, in the title of liberty, they view, you know, these groups view the, um, their responsibilities and their actions in a certain way that was very temporal and time-based, you know, to their lives or whatever. And we don't really come in to look at that with a lens that says, hey. In context. In context. Yes. You're making some faulty decisions here and this isn't right because I, I know that in my study of the Book of Mormon my whole life uh, literally up until about three minutes ago when, you made that comment, <laughs> when I read the Book of Mormon I take these you know in my study I take these every single passage right 
and you find a way to be able to basically apply that to uh, your own context. Literally. This, yes. This thing, so this is what we should be doing, and that's used as kind of a justification for what? For what we for what we do. And I think that that is a grave mistake that I'm very grateful that you just pointed out to me because we can, um, we should take their entire situation in context and then understand that they are making mistakes. And we have the agency and the liberty to look at those stories and say, hey, does it really make sense that they are running around killing all these people or that they're doing these things or whatever it is, right? You yeah, know, you, right. I want to cherry pick examples because I don't know them. No. To defend anything I say, so you know that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let me give you let me give you an example of that. I uh, in in talking to Chinese group yesterday, uh, one of the things that I was telling them was the fact that I found it interesting that again my my favorite parable, and I'm writing a book on the thing because I just love this the the parable of the the prodigal son and and all that, and you have all the things going on in the and in, in the prodigal son, and and at the end of the story. The father is explaining to the older brother, everything I have is yours. Why are you going to be angry because uh, I did this for your younger brother? My son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And then the story stops. Jesus never completes what happens next. We are left not knowing whether the older brother will go into the feast or not. And I think that was a deliberate, whether, whether he closed it out, I don't know. But I do know that Luke didn't. And there are a number of these where it's left hanging, and I think that then leaves it to us to then step into the scripture and go, what would I do? Based on this information, now what would I do? What should I do? Do you know that the original, the original ending to the book of Mark ended with the women running back to tell the disciples that Jesus was resurrected. The earliest documents that we have in Greek end the story there. There's nothing after that moment in Mark. And, and, and the audiences they were preaching to and, and doing as a play, because it was done orally as a play, the book of Mark, would have been left, it would have been the last line would have been, and the women ran to tell the disciples and they wouldn't believe him. The end. <laughs> it, it goes dark right then. You know, and they would have had to say, so you're sitting at the end of the play going, wow, what would I do? Would I, would I believe them or not? If I'm one of the women, how do I convince I just some of these stories are left to say now what are we going to do with this and we may agree or disagree or whatever but anyway you were, I, I took you far afield sorry it's okay you covered it okay yeah so Alma 31.5 gives us an answer that I find to be adequate where it says that preaching has more effect on people than the sword or anything else um, and this is where they were preaching, I think, to the Lamanite prisoners. Um, yes. But even so, because we have agency, we need to understand that even if we do everything right, 
the person that we're trying to have an influence on has the authority to decide yeah. to not accept any of our guidance. No question. But, but, but I think you'd agree with me also that in the manner in which I teach or preach oh, could, could have a tremendous right. effect on whether you, 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 you respond with walls up or, or whether you would completely reject it based on my approach, the right? The greatest gospel gift that is under-recognized and under, people don't notice it when it happens is the gift of tongues. And it's not when I'm speaking to somebody. It's not foreign language, is it? It's when I'm speaking this. to somebody and we both think we speak the same language and the Spirit guides me or guides them to use a different word yeah. than they would have or I would have used. Or, I, or somehow I'm able to translate, how do I speak Jim? Or how, <laughs> how, how do I learn how to speak? <laughs> yeah, how do I learn to, to speak uh, Brent? Or how do I speak Alan? When we're, when we're receptive to the Spirit, we receive that gift of tongues, and we don't know it yeah. that we've received it, but we sure know when we have it. Even if, even if we have to say, I'm, I'm going to speak your language, but I have to tell you that you're going to have to not do that, or I'm going to tell you that if you're going to stay in our house, you'll have to do well, this. Well, there are situational times when you have to not... When you have to go against behavior, yeah. you just have to say, no, you can't behave. I know. Behavior. Yeah, and we just have to recognize that when, if we're ever into that point where we have to, then we have to also recognize there will be consequences. Because sure. the final ending point of that, remember, was that uh, back to 1838, W.W. W. Phelps leaves. And he, saw, and he te speaks to Boggs. And Boggs uses his words, in, and we have Phelps' affidavit. And it's part of what drove the extermination order. And then I can't remember what who it was. One of the one of the missionaries from the church reached out to Phelps after we were in Nauvoo and said, I think Joseph would take you back. And no, he wouldn't after everything. No, I think he would. I think he would. No. Okay. Write him a letter, I'll hand deliver it. Man, I wish I could remember who it was that did that. Uh, anyway, so he does. He hand delivers the thing back to Joseph, and he, he says, "I want to, I want to come back." And da, 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 everything. now, in Joseph's letters, letter back to W. W. Phelps, remember that Phelps was a poet, so he's gonna respond speaking the language of W. W. Phelps, which was the the lines that we know, right? Come now, dear brother, since the war is past. Her friends at first are friends again at last. You know, even though we have been harmed to overflowing w because of your actions, please come back. Cause you can put it in phrases that would stick in WW Phelps' head like a song that you can't get rid of. And I, and I agree with you. I think that was the gift of tongues on Joseph's part. Yeah. Well, I, that reveals. Uh, the character of Joseph Smith also. Hugely. Yeah. And uh, in the MDC, Elder Bednar gives uh, <coughs> missionaries about the character of Christ. And uh, in, in all of this, we're talking nature and nurture and all that. Yeah. We have to figure out for ourselves. We're, we're talking about how we're going to change other people's natures. 
Our biggest challenge is to change our nature to become, to acquire the nature of Christ, the character of Christ, Christ-like character. Yeah. And uh, if we can't figure out how to change our own character. We start with us, don't we? You know, we, we, we start with us. We have to go, we first of all got to go out and clear out the, the beam in our own eye so that then we have the sight and the ability to then clear out the motes in somebody else's eye. But you're, you're right, we start with us. So we're starting on changing our own nature, which is, I think, kind of where we're trying to finally get to. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to the prodigal son, uh, if you don't mind Yeah. I just wonder how many people have ever, I've never heard this brought up before, but I wouldn't have given him all that money. <laughs> I wouldn't have allowed mine. I wouldn't. It's like giving the child the money. Most Arabic scholars say they wouldn't do it either. It's astounding that Jesus went down that road, and they're shocked. They said no respectable father in the Middle East would have done what that father did. And yet, Joe. So, so what the fa- what Heavenly Father does to people that don't deserve, or that we can't handle things, He did anyway. Which is again, as part of the astoundingness of that. I think that's the right so question. The prodigal son, to me, the 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 prodigal is every single one of us. No question. And the good son. And. The good son is the savior, but the savior doesn't act the way the good son acted. And the Father is the Father. And even though the Father gives everything to the Savior, who doesn't complain when we come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though he's given it all to the to the Savior, right. he still has it all to give to every one of us. There's there's no loss of ability to give. Yeah, I can, I can see how you'd see that. Uh, I look at it and say, when I ask, when I ask what I deserve, I can be either I can be either brother. You be I, I can be the I can be the younger brother thinking I deserve, or I can be what do I deserve because you're getting stuff you shouldn't you shouldn't be getting. I think I can be either brother, and I think we fight our nature to go back and forth between. Well, you can you can you can paint yourself as either brother, but none of us none of us are are the good brother, no matter what we think we are. I, Oh, if, if I if I am if I'm jealous of what somebody else is getting, I think I can slide into the older brother really easy. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> I want to interject here is that uh, when we're looking at ourselves as a parent, and and you're talking about the anger and the guilt we fear, sometimes that, uh, those those uh, situations aren't clean. You're bringing you may be bringing stress and anger in from. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And it comes back to yep. like who kicked the cat? You know, you, you don't know where that came from sometimes because maybe you're overreacting on something, but it's coming from someplace else that you're overstressed. Yep. And that's when we that's when we make our worst decisions, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We need to wrap up. Whew. We can keep going. <laughs> good. Good stuff, guys. Uh, again, I think the, the, let me just say again. I think the role of the scriptures is to inspire us and to bless us and to teach us, but also to challenge us. And I think when we're looking at, at these kind of things, we look at it and we say, how much of this is similar? Because certain patterns, human nature just seems to repeat. 
over and over and over, and yet contexts are different. Uh, I love when historians say that uh, that the, the past is a foreign country <laughs> because we're looking into the past, but we're viewing it through our present eyes. But human nature being the same, that's why I think I think there's a wrestle that that needs to be done. So, anyway, thank you. Uh, pray you kind of think about it. And I'll leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I get a closing prayer from somebody? Including you. Would you? (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss... Or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming. And we'll see you for another Monday morning class.